0: Hey, WellPod listeners, a quick note to let you know there's a bit of strong language in this episode. So if you're sensitive to that sort of thing or if you have kids in the room, this is just your heads up. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Do you dream
1: about music? Yes, yes. Music is magical, man. It's a magical thing. It's a, it's a way of communicating emotion very more directly than a book, for example. When you have a book, a writer writes down uh, his lines or a scene or characters, and you interpret it as your own reader. And everybody interprets in a different way. Music forces you to feel what the composer is feeling. And it forces you, so it is a very much more direct communication, like a painting. A painting is more deliberate communication of an art form than words are. And for me, music is the same. So music's kind of a painting without the visual. Welcome to
0: The Well. I'm Anson Mount. And I am Brandon Edgins. And today we've got an interview with Roel René. He's a Dutch director I worked with recently. Brandon hasn't heard this yet. And, uh, well, I won't say much more than that. We'll just let you get to know Roll. Jump right in here. I have to cough for a Oh, no worries. <coughs> <clears throat>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you. There was a, a cold <laughs> going on. <laughs> said at the time we were both suffering from it.
1: I there was a moment that there was a moment where where I felt like I want to do this. That was when I saw Blade Runner, and I was 12, and I. You then understand the that movies are made and people are creating them, and you read some magazines about it, and you know who you know who Sp- Steven Spielberg is, kind of thing. But um, but when I saw Blade Runner, I was like, ah, oh, I want to do that. I want to come up with this thing. I want to shoot that and co- create that and do that. So from that moment on, I was learning, and I created my own film school. You know, I went to film sets, broke onto film lots. I uh, I was looking at people working at night and, and uh, a lot of making-offs and behind the scenes I had a laser disc with director's commentaries and I did everything. But when I was, uh, I think I was 20, I think, 19 or 20, I was on the set of this Dutch director who does uh, kind of horror movies and uh, his name is Dick Maas. And uh, I sneaked on his set in Amsterdam. And uh, I was looking around and I was seeing, uh, and there was all the high-end people and they were doing this big stunt or action, I don't know anymore. And I felt like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. Why, why did you think that? Because it was not that difficult. You know, it was not that complicated. And I also, and I, that feeling, I always kept with me. Could you
0: run us through, I know you've told me before, but could you run us through a little bit about what led you, what was your entree? into Hollywood. So this required a much more nuanced answer than even I had expected. And I'm speaking as someone who knows how a neat, tidy resume in this business is actually a rather pale reflection to the years of struggle that go into filling it out.
1: I was 23 when I directed my first TV show in Holland, but it was a big action series. And I was 25 and I had my own production company and produced series. and directed them. And I was 28 when I started developing my my first feature film. I shot it when I was 29.
0: It's called The Delivery. Now, Roll literally took out a second mortgage on his home and borrowed money from anybody he could and basically did every stupid thing that you're not supposed to do as a first-time filmmaker. But he he managed to put together about $350,000. But as you and I both know, that is not a lot of money. For a feature film a lot of people would tell you especially in the action genre this is pretty much impossible or it's going to look amateurish and nobody will want to see it right
1: right well that's won me a lot of awards i got the dutch oscar for that as a director but it was picked up by warner brothers theatrical in europe and lionsgate bought it for america
0: so then roll gets an american agent and an american manager and lionsgate offers him another movie and movie falls apart so he stays in Holland, makes another movie he's not happy with, some more TV. And it's during this time he realizes that the kinds of movies he wants to make just aren't made in Europe. They're made here, with the big studios. But he's still uncertain, you know, not sure about changing his entire life. And then one day he's in LA and a friend says, hey, I know this other Dutch filmmaker. Maybe you should meet
1: him. And I had uh, breakfast with Paul Verhoeven and he said to me, you know, you're only going to make movies here if you live here. So get your ass here if you want to be this director. Paul Verhoeven told me. Yes, Paul Verhoeven told me.
0: And in case any of our listeners are unfamiliar with Paul Verhoeven, you might want to check out a little movie called, what, RoboCop? RoboCop. Yeah. What yeah. else? Uh, well, Showgirls. But, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think
2: more more interestingly than that is actually a Starship Troopers, which is oh, one, yeah. sort of a,
0: a, a subtly subversive uh, sci-fi film. Yeah, but v- very successful Dutch, interesting Dutch director. So anyway, Roel basically could not have run into a more authoritative voice to help him answer this question. So he sells his house. He and his girlfriend, who's now his wife, move to Los Angeles. And this is where Roel makes a decision that I think was so smart. I'll let him tell
1: it. My agent and manager at the time, they were um, they saying to me, "Oh, you're the European Michael Bay. You need to be patient. We're gonna get you the twenty million dollar theatrical movie. The first movie is important." And I, I saw a lot of friends, director directors from Europe, from France or Holland, and they did the same thing, and the, the, for six years, and they had even a friend of mine had an Academy Awards uh, foreign film on, on the, in his arms. For six years, they're not doing anything. They're waiting for this one big break. And if this one big break is then a financial not successful movie, they are directors, Jill and Back to Home. So I said to my agent, my manager, fuck that. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna play this Hollywood waiting, being patient game um, because I wanna be a director and I'm not good enough yet. And I believe in the 10,000 hour rules, right? You need to do 10,000 hour of piano playing if you wanna become a concert pianist. So I said, I want to do anything. So I want to, for the next 10 years, I want to do sequels, prequels. I don't care. I want to be on sets.
0: And that's when role is promptly dropped by his manager. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: But he found another one who, by the way, is with him to this day. And he starts working. I started doing B-movies. You know, I started doing low budget first for $100,000, $350,000. And then my third movie was the Seagal movie. Yes,
0: that's Steven Seagal.
1: But it was a $9 million movie. I had to do it for 2.7, of course.
0: But in the course of the next eight years, Roll directs 17 feature films. Wow. That is an, a ridiculous amount of work for a director, particularly in action. He got his 10,000 hours in, I think. That is,
1: that, is, that is, he's got it in. And I had a blast. And then three years ago, I felt like, I have enough. Now I know enough. I have my 10,000 hours. I will go back to Holland and make a movie that really matters. So I went back to Holland to do a story that everybody thought is impossible to film with Dutch budgets. And that was Admiral.
0: And you could not do this movie. At least that's what everybody thought. And especially on a budget of 8 million euro.
1: So everybody was in completely panic. And I was not because I always remember myself and told everybody who was in panic. I said... Give me two actors and a camera and I can tell the story. Everything else is gravy. And you know, everything else is cool. So I always I always keep very my nerves down. I'm very relaxed. I never stressed out because the basics is very simple. What I really dug about Admiral
0: is is that he, where you chose to start that film was so smart. In this little bucolic church With just murmuring voices. And then you hear these sounds from outside. And these people all run outside and they run up this hill. And then you come over the hill and there's this gigantic chaos, this battle of ships going on in in the sea.
1: and and you put rhythm and music in it and emotions and and then you can really massage the whole thing. And then music and sound is even more wonderful because then you can... For me, for any movie experience, 70% is sound, uh, not images. So then you bring in all this other layer of emotions and and subtext and I love every phase and then it's finished I love to watch my own movies <laughs> so it's like for me every every step is a, is a dream.
0: What would you say is the, the the biggest difference between making films in Europe and making films in the United States?
1: Um, <clears throat> there's also a big difference between making films in America and making television in America. Mm. There's also a huge difference. Um, in Holland as a director, you're the author of the movie. So even if you have a writer writing it, you are the only people in, person in charge. And a lot of producers in, in, in Europe and in Holland are really, uh, they are involved in developments and in creative process, but way less than the director. The director has much more responsibilities. And uh, Easier to be an auteur. Yes, yes.
0: I love the honesty that he loves to watch his own movies. You never hear that in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. But going back to what he was saying about, about his belief that 70% of filmmaking is sound. 70% is a pretty big margin, especially in the age of computer imaging, IMAX, the 3D revolution. All these things that would suggest that most people's attention is now weighted towards the visual, right? So I guess it really was this anomaly of an action director fixated on sound and music that sparked my deeper interest in role. And so one day we were on set between camera setups and I just asked him, I said, other than filmmaking, what's your real passion?
1: The funny thing is I like operas. I like Bach, I'm a really big fan of Bach. And I like electronic dance music.
0: Shake your booty, baby. When we come back, more about Rol Rene's electronic dance music, which is nothing like what you're currently hearing or thinking. Hey there, WellPod listeners, we're very excited to announce that we now have a newsletter. And with it, we'll be sharing bonus content, such as behind-the-scenes photos, links to interesting sites and articles dealing with our subjects, updates on our guests, and you'll be automatically entered to win special giveaways that we'll be announcing very soon. You may even win Brannon, but you'll have to cover the postage on that one. Just go to our website, thewellpod.com, that's thewellpod.com, and hit the newsletter and subscriptions button. Signing up is super easy and super fast, we promise to keep your information private, and you'll only hear from us every couple of weeks at the most. Thanks for supporting The Well. Now, back to the show. So, I, EDM, how did how did you start
1: composing I know. electronic music? Um, I always made music oh, when I was really young already. Uh, I went to concerts of Jamie Zajara and you know, Vangelis and Tangerine Dream. I never went to their concert, but I, I had their albums. And So uh, I had a synthesizer when I was 14. A DX7 was my first synthesizer. And then I, I can play piano. My parents tried to get me on piano lessons. I didn't like it, piano lessons. I didn't like reading notes, but I could improvise on piano. And then for me, synthesizers was kind of the next thing.
0: you were you were gesticulating because you had the same instrument oh yeah the dx7 yeah
2: really I, I had that as a kid i mean it's, it's funny because it's, it's it was a it was an early digital um uh thing and it was really really simple but all that 80s stuff when, when sounds got kind of tinnier and uh and so we went away from it for a while but now he's going back to it now going back even further pre. DX7 going back to, you know, some of these really old analog synthesizers look like, uh, you know, old telephone switchers. They're just like, just... Yeah, uh, that's exactly what it looks like.
1: But it was always a hobby. I never uh, was really... Uh, taking it seriously, but it was really a a nice hobby because also, I think music, for me, is very um, it's like therapeutic therapeutic is that therapeutic. The yeah. therapeutic. It's i I use it to creatively, I use it all the time. you know, when I create a story, when I prep a movie, when I'm in the car riding to the set, music is always there. And for me, uh, electronic music, also, I like the, the energy of it, you know, creating, creating emotion with just electronic um, pulses is very interesting. You know, if you play a violin or a cello, cello is my favorite or, uh, instrument, cello. You, you know, whatever you do on a cello, it's always beautiful and emotional. But if you want to get from electronic pulses emotion... That's kind of a challenge. I like that. Is so, it because
0: you can do the whole thing yourself? Is that part probably, of the... Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> the
1: there it comes. <laughs>
0: Album by yourself, released it yourself, everything.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. I I didn't even know it was possible, right? But I I composed the music, then I recorded all the analog stuff into my laptop with uh, using uh, Ableton Live, and then some of the samples that I used I used Ableton Live to play with it, and then you can you can publish your own album from the internet. You know, there's this website called CD Baby, and when you go there. You can, uh, you, so you export your clips in Ableton as kind of uh, wave files. I designed my own uh, uh, <clears throat> label, my own CD uh, uh, label thing, and my own design. And then I put it there online and then they distributed it to iTunes and to Spotify. And uh, if it is good and, uh, and it came up everywhere. It's an exciting time, <clears throat> it's an exciting time for,
0: I think, for artists in general. Uh, there are filmmakers now that are being discovered by making their own media, and at the very least, just getting it up on YouTube. Yes, and a variety of different ways. There, there's there's so many more ways to be discovered now.
1: I give uh, master classes like once a year. I do like a masterclass somewhere in the world, and I that my masterclass is all about that. You know, when I was like 18, 19 years old, I borrowed my father's 8 millimeter film camera. Film stock was very expensive. I shot my toys, my Playmobil toys, and did little stop motion with it. That was my first experience with movie making. But now, 18-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids, with their iPhone, they can make a fucking feature film in a feature film quality. Um, and therefore, I'm 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 so frustrated when I go and do these master classes on film schools and in in countries where everybody's like, oh, I want to do this short and I need $20,000. You do not need $20,000 to do a short. You know, you just need an iPhone and a laptop and go for it. And the 10,000 hour rule, you know, you need to be filming bloody movies. Every weekend you should be filming a movie. This you can do at home you know and so i was blown away that i was making my own cd uh, in my own laptop releasing it from an internet website and now you can get it from itunes and spotify it makes no me very stu- proud no
0: studio yeah
1: nobody just, you know just me
0: yeah there. and uh I, I saw some this video of you playing for uh, just a few people in los angeles and it looked like a warehouse or something what was going on there
1: yeah no that's it's called modular on the spot you know the, i i have a modular synthesizer i also have analog synthesizers like a a Moog and 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 a roland uh, juno 60 so i have the classic uh, analog synthesizers but also i have a modular Eurorack system but it's like a it's a suitcase and you fill it up with s- small model synthesizers that can do all these kind of cool things with sound and audio and and effects and all kind of stuff and modulations and then there's uh, ma- people make music by it and some people make very experimental music and some people make a really kind of depeche of a, like a, a, <clears throat> a Jarre kind of music over berlin school what i really like berlin school music um and there's this group in in la they started in la it's called modeler on the spot and they started a year ago and basically what they did They brought these guys with Modeler synthesizers and at the LA River, in the LA River, they did this underground filming, uh, uh, performing for each other. And it became a big cult. And now every month, there are like hundreds of people watching these uh, little events. And Modeler on the Spot has now brought out over the whole world. So you have Modeler on the Spot in Toronto and Melbourne and in Europe. It becomes this whole generation of Modeler electronic music makers that perform for each other. And it's, it's an well, exciting you see, you're, time. You're
0: really right there in the nexus of this what this thing is becoming.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah. I think what, what really happened is that a lot of music composers, they are fed up sitting behind a laptop and making music with software because it's not hands-on. And people are frustrated, and they found now in this electronic music, in going back to analog or going back to classical musical instruments, people going away from the computers because it's, it's boring to watch a screen the whole day.
0: Yeah, is is there a, is there a kind of any kind of anxiety of mixing on the day there in front of people?
1: Yeah, for me, it was the first time I was live performing with my suitcase. Yeah, and it was it was very exciting. Yeah, it was. I made, uh, I I wanted to, because it was the whole Trump thing, right? It was January, so I wanted to do this political thing. So I I downloaded some speeches from Kennedy. And I made music around speeches of Kennedy and and performed them for like ten minutes. And uh, I really liked it because of the energy of people, the urgency of doing it live. And you don't need to. It's not a concert, you know. You're not making a record. You're not. You just have fun and experiment with music. We choose to go to the moon.
0: We choose to go to the moon. Because that goal can serve to organize and measure the best. But I can only imagine that composing music demands a kind of uh, an investment in structure that is really quite a muscular and then it requires a different part of your brain that does it maybe like let go of this other part of your brain to relax and free flow so
1: yeah i think that's right i think everything with movie has to do with telling stories um what is the emotional beat how where do you put the camera and when you make music you let all that go it's only about feelings and um, about rhythm and about um, unexpected things and yeah it's really it liberates your mind and therefore it's very inspiring i know that one of the things i do if i'm blocked
0: as a writer or an actor is i go hit golf balls and something about this this very simple thing that that demands uh, focus lets the part of my brain that's been squeezing on something to just relax for a minute
1: yes no i can i can understand that For me, what is so interesting about modular music is that it's so repetitive and monotonic. That's the reason my album is called Monotonic Diversity. Is that the monotonic rhythm is kind of a pulse. It's kind of a meditation without really meditating. And uh, for me, it's that feeling. It's that for me, I can listen hours to the same pattern in music and it gets you in a status what is like a yeah, meditation, like an EDM meditation.
0: That's interesting because you, know, you said to me the other day that, that you like music because it brings with it the intentionality that you want the, the listener to have or the mood yes. or that brings the mood with it. But it occurred to me watching some of your filmmaking that you do that same thing but not just with the music. You do that with the camera with all the reveals yes with the, forcing the audience to want to invest something yeah. with all of those I think, reveals those, those yes
1: you're right you know the style of shooting and the way i reveal with the camera comes from music you know music is also a a uh, you reveal something you you have an intention as a composer to oh we i now remember what we talked about you know a book is something when you are writing your writer as a reader you your imagination is telling the story so you as a writer and you write the letters in a book you create something for somebody else to create something when you make music you don't do that you create your emotion as a composer and you put it right in the face of the consumer and I like that, so I will keep going. Music, you know, the, the good thing about this modeler, this suitcase synthesizer, is that every it month- looks like a bomb, by the way. It <laughs> looks like a huge atomic <laughs> bomb you're carrying yes. around. Yes, and uh, when I tra- take it with me on the travels, uh, it goes to security, uh, <laughs> big, uh, all the alarms go off. <clears> okay, <throat> but um, I'm I'm now reforming it because that's so cool about this thing. It's like a living organism. You change it all the time. You change, and therefore you change your music. But uh, so I'm gonna perform in uh, in May again, and and I'm I'm doing new tracks and see if I can do another album this year, end of the year or so. Great. Yeah. All right. Well,
0: thanks a lot for letting me interview you. Yeah, it's cool, it. man.
1: And it was yeah. great working with you, man. Yeah, you as
0: well. Ones. I really yeah. really enjoyed it. It's yeah. nice. I haven't, honestly. Never so done. the amazing yeah. thing about this instrument I realize that Roll is using, is that it is its own studio. A role he composes with it he records into it and then he can spit that out into a di- digital file it removes the need for a studio and that made me think back to this almost clairvoyant um, interview that Francis Ford Coppola had back in the 70s where he said you know the problem with filmmaking is that only a few people can afford to do it because it's, it's such an expensive instrument that Eventually, one day, we will all have access to this instrument, and only then will we find our Mozart, and it will be this thirteen-year-old fat girl in, in Kansas. And it makes me think that I, we're there now. Like you can go to the corner electronics store and, and get a top-of-the-line camera for not too much money, and and a couple of lav mics, and you're in you're in business.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the democratization of the of the, of the gear is an incredible thing and and it's true no one has an excuse anymore everyone has all the tools and that's puts you kind of in a weird spot because uh as an artist now you realize like okay now i i don't have an excuse you know it's, it's kind of like you know uh you know guitar nerds that go off and buy a 68 stratocaster because then then they'll sound like Jimi hendrix <laughs> <laughs> and then you find out you don't sound like Jimi Hendrix. And that's because it's not just the instrument. It's 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 the artist. It's the vision. And I don't think... I mean, I'm all for the democratization of the tools and cheaper tools and in everybody's hands. I don't think it's going to create more visionaries. I think it's, unfortunately, to some extent, it's also created a lot of noise, uh that we have to get through. There's the, the, the good stuff is still out there, but now there's a lot of people making stuff because they can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way, you know, because I, I want the, that this, this vision of the 13 year old fat girl from Kansas to blow everyone away. You know, I, I still want that to happen. Um, but, she's just as rare now as she was 50 years ago right um because i I don't think that for example i don't think that more uh available tools creates more visionaries and the, the proof of that is when paint became commercially available it didn't produce more rembrandts and titians because those guys had to go had to know chemistry they had to go out and grind minerals down create these colors that were like signature colors. They were deeply intimate with every part of the process. Titian red is called Titian red because Titian invented it. That was the particular combination of, ore that he ground down and kind of patented and that's his signature color. When paint became commercially available, it didn't produce more visionaries. It just meant more people could paint. It meant more people could buy the medium and, uh, you know, you know, sp- splatter paint all over the canvas, nothing against <laughs> abstract expressionists, because that's fine.
0: Maybe it's, there th- wouldn't have been a Pollock. <laughs> that,
2: that, you know, I, I bet if Pollock had to go out and grind his yeah, own, minerals, I, mean, I don't think he would have gone like, I spent all day making this, and I'm just going to just splatter it all over the place. And so willy nilly. But I will say, uh, one thing I would add to that, though, is that I do think that one good, one really great thing about the, commercializ- uh, the commercialization uh, of, or the industrialization of paint production, for example is it did mean people could experiment and learn principles without having to go through uh, these apprenticeships and, uh, and going to the academy where everyone is kind of taught to paint in eh, the same way. and they, they tell you that they're there to encourage
0: your individual expression, but they're not. <laughs> yeah, suddenly you don't have to learn chemistry.
2: Right, you don't have to learn chemistry. Yeah. I mean, for people like me and I think uh Roel as well i uh, we like the chemistry we enjoy the intimacy of knowing every step of the process
0: yeah you you were saying earlier that 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 Roel's, uh, experience with uh f- suddenly realizing when he was watching Blade Runner, mm-hmm. which strangely enough, perhaps poetically has a very heavy electronic soundtrack he, That experience of of realizing, oh, people do this for a living, you had that with... Jaws. Yeah.
2: Yeah. When I was... How old was that when Jaws came out? I don't remember. Um, But I remember that was when the light bulb went off in my head as a filmmaker. I remember my father and my two brothers, uh, you know as the credits were rolling, my father and my two brothers started talking about how they did it. And uh, one of them said, oh, I heard there was a robot shark. And then somebody said, oh, they put a midget in a cage with a real shark to make the make him look bigger. And they were talking about this and I was sitting in the theater and looking up at the screen and looking at all these names scroll by with, you know, titles I didn't understand, but I realized, oh, all of these people are essentially professional liars. You know, their job is to create an illusion. Their job, it took all those people up there to make us believe we were seeing something that never happened mm-hmm. and i just thought that was the coolest way you could ever spend your life <laughs> is duping people <laughs> <laughs> and creating and I, I especially had that experience uh you know because I, I started out in special effects makeup and you know monster creation and that kind of thing and that's sort of the ultimate trip is to start with something that is uh, just an idea and then take it from concept through these, you know, combination of art and engineering to make something that uh, looks like life that, that's supposed to fool people and, and, and that it's alive and breathing and, and such. That was, but again, that's it's all an illusion and all filmmaking is an illusion. Uh, who was it who said, you know, film lies at 24 frames per second.
0: Do you think that Jaws would have been the Jaws that we know Had Spielberg had CG at that time? Absolutely not. Yeah, I agree.
2: No way. And here's why. Everyone probably knows this story, but I can probably do a a quick recap of it. When Spielberg showed Lucas the storyboards for Jaws, Lucas already knew that this was way too ambitious, and he said, if you can get half of this on screen, you've got to hit. They got much less than half on the screen because the mechanical shark named Bruce didn't work kept sinking the salt water corroded the lines and it you know it was it was a disaster they shut down that movie two or three times spielberg had a nervous breakdown on the plane they had a sedatum <laughs> <laughs> he thought his career was over <laughs> they kept pulling the plug on this thing it's like where is the shark in the movie called jaws we don't have it you know like yeah everyone was terrified and this goes back to what we were saying about having, you know, all the tools available. If you can do absolutely anything, you kind of stop being creative, right? You know, uh, if it's nothing, if you know, if you if you have a magic toolbox that can make absolutely anything happen, yeah,
0: where do you start? The, you have to have a seed, and that and that's you have where to balance, you 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 can't you 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 can't. Create in a vacuum, you have to have obstruction, right?
2: Vacuum is a good word for it. It's like you're floating in space and there's nothing to push off of. You're just sort of <laughs> tumbling around with nothing to get a grip on. I feel that way when it comes to editing film or, or, or making music. There's this magic box that can do absolutely anything, but it always feels like it's about five feet away from you. It doesn't feel like you've got your hands on it. And I need uh, tactile feedback you know, uh, when I could get it. Now, I don't miss editing film on a flatbed. It was difficult and it was messy and it was expensive. But having the film run through your hands like that, you're feeling time slide through your hands. and it's and it makes those seconds really precious and it makes you really consider, is this important? Do I really need this shot? Because when it comes time to edit it in, you gotta stop the machine, pull the film out, pull onto your block splicer, cut it, put in your piece of film, tape it back together, put it back in the thing and watch it. And then you're like, oh okay. That was a neat idea, <laughs> but it didn't work. And and you Right, you, or just one more frame. Or one more frame. Oh my gosh. It's, 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 after a while your work print starts to look like rosary beads. It's nothing, this is like just hell, just giant lumps of tape <laughs> going to the machine. Um And, but I'm glad I learned it that way because, uh, it, it was, it was a way of dealing with limitations that made you consider the most important thing, the, the, the conceptual stuff that you're after the story, um, you know, not flinching and cutting away from it or reframing just because you can, it made you really consider what you had and really, really sit with it and consider its strengths and its weaknesses but nothing replaces that that feeling of having the film slide through your hand and watch those little those little pictures go by and it's the same thing with electronic music production you know starting with an oscillator and you just have this signal you can sort of imagine it's uh as it as the signal passes mm-hmm. down the chain from one thing to another and then you just move the chain from one oscillator to another or you change a sawtooth to a you know square tooth wave or whatever and suddenly everything changes it's 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 an amazing uh feeling to be to feel physically connected to electricity you know to, yeah. to feel to have to have a uh, a tactile interaction with something that is invisible
0: Special thanks to Roll Renee for taking the time out of what was a very hectic shooting schedule to sit down in my trailer and answer my crazy questions. You can find his album Monotonic Diversity on iTunes. We highly recommend it. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music by Steve Combs under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Have a great week.